Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today on a cloudy day in the city of Westminster, a rather deserted city of Westminster at that, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by James Nottingham. James is the director and co-founder of Challenging Learning, a group of six independent companies providing professional development training and resources for people working with three to 19 year olds. James, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on with us today. Delighted to join you, thank you for the invitation. It's um, wonderful having you, James. Now, first and foremost, the purpose of this podcast is to get a bit, little bit more information about your take on leadership. So what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? I think leadership is about deciding on a direction and uh, motivating, encouraging, um, helping a group of people a team of people to head in that direction. And one might hope that is a a good direction and that might mean good in terms of social or ethical or uh, financial, but uh, to, in effect, rally the troops and uh, get everybody on board and heading in, in that direction that we've decided upon. And I can imagine certainly in your line of work, your leadership model very much involves working collaboratively with other people and managing that as well. Absolutely. And it's twofold, really. One is the work we do with the schools and colleges and uh, nurseries around the world. Um, They, of course, have a a particular style of leadership and uh, we have to be part of that and we join them in effect and we we help them along their journey, and some of those institutions have very, very, very clear visions. Um, others less clear because of a change of leadership or because it's a relatively new organisation. So there's that one side in terms of our work with clients, and then the other part of our leadership is, of course, leading the challenging learning team. Now we we are in six different countries and. Um, so working remotely, coming together, making sure that we uh, share the same values, we are sharing um, uh, similar outlooks and uh, attitudes and abilities with the people we work with is very, very important. And of course, there's that cultural, those cultural differences to take account of as well. And I realise, of course, the UK is very, very multicultural. And then if you add in the um, other countries that uh, we have employees in. It's a fascinating, fascinating journey. Absolutely. And I can imagine, especially that branching out into Scandinavian countries such as Denmark and Sweden and uh, having to sort of grasp the culture there has also been an interesting learning curve for yourselves also. Very much so, yeah. And some of the things that um, have surprised us. So, for example, um, it seems to be a relatively typical uh, approach in, let's say, for example, Denmark, where kids go to school to enjoy. That's the that's the primary goal: go to enjoy and live life. Whereas we might, of course, support that idea, but that might be um, in tandem with work hard and focus and get good grades and get good qualifications. And of course, the the Danes that we work with also want their kids to uh, do well, but primary focus is uh, be a good citizen and, and enjoy yourself and and that 
plays itself out in very many different ways. You know, we, we might work, we might talk with groups about in Scandinavia about the idea of leadership being working hard and rolling up your sleeves. And it's almost as if, I wouldn't say they disagree, but they're certainly not nodding as vigorously as they might in, let's say, the USA or, or the UK for that matter. Um, so the, those nuances have, have been absolutely fascinating. And an, another part of the Scandinavian idea is this sense of um, less is more and um, shouldn't really waste words. And if you can say something in 10 words, we'll do so. Don't take 100 words to say what you can do in 10. Mm, that's really, really interesting. And uh, what I like about uh, your line of work as well as its purpose is very much to, of course, inspire people also. And if we think about inspirations for um, a moment, um, who would you say yeah, must have been some of the inspirations uh, behind you on your career path, James? Well, many... Um, but personal to me would be um, I absolutely hated secondary school. I I, I was a, I wouldn't say an abject failure, but I, I certainly didn't get the most out of it, and, and um, felt as if it was um, somewhat irrelevant, and that it had a relatively short shelf life, and I didn't ever expect to go into into teaching as a result. In fact, the best day of my childhood probably was the day I left school. But then I, I did some work, uh, some charity work in, in apartheid South Africa. And and then um, I worked in as a childcare officer in a school for deaf children. And eventually decided that maybe teaching is the way for me. And when I went to university, the first... Uh, lecturer there, Chris Rowley, he turned my idea of education upside down. I, I'd gone into teacher training thinking that I can build rapport with kids. I'm pretty good with kids and motivating them, um, less so with the academic side of things. But when I went to university, this guy, Chris Rowley, he, he, he led us um, to believe that actually Education is as much about how you think as it is about what you think. And so asking the questions are as important as finding the answers and investigating and pondering and pushing the boundaries to see if there's better ways forward. That, for me, was an absolute revelation, um, having gone through a school system that at the time Certainly, my experience was that it was very much knowledge-based, and I felt as if the knowledge was, as I said before, rather uh, short-termist, uh, short-shelf life, and I felt as if this information is going to go out of date even before I leave school, never mind in the education, uh, in, in the world of work. But then here was Chris Rowley saying, you know, what about the questions? What about the problem-solving? What about the investigation? What about being persistent? What about... Um, being imaginative and it really really inspired me and put me on the path that uh, I'm on right now and um, took me into teaching uh, eventually into consultancy and now uh, into leadership of uh, these group of companies. 
And I think that's a really interesting example as well. And uh, some of the points you raised there are hugely important because um, this idea of pushing the boundaries and learning, leaders even in their roles still have to do that, don't they? Because a leader is still going to have limitations. Human beings are fallible and a leader isn't going to have all of the answers. It's still very much a journey for them of pushing the boundaries, trying things, making mistakes, maybe getting things wrong, and then learning from that and continuing to develop themselves, isn't it? Absolutely. I think um, a key part of it is it's a learning journey. And I do feel as if I'm learning all the time. Um, I, I think being clear about the direction in which we're heading, and that's not having the answers, and that's not being clear about what the end result is, but being clear about the direction we're going, what we stand for, what our values are, what we we, we won't walk past. You know, um, I, I'm a bit of an amateur at it, but I'm a fan of etymology and, and looking at the, the root meanings of words. And, mm. uh, disaster um, comes from disastro, which is to lose your stars. And, of course, in our ancestors would uh, navigate around the world um, sailing, and you needed to see the stars to know where you were and where you were heading. And, and I think it's very important as leaders to be clear about what are those stars? What are we in this for? What's this? What's our purpose? What's our moral purpose? What's our uh, creative, our financial, our social, our ethical purpose? But to be clear about that direction and be and bring everybody on board, heading in that direction. And bringing people on board is um, a hugely important part of leadership, isn't it? Because it's important to remember that it's not just about one man or one woman. It's uh, very much. A collective effort isn't it especially running a business and it's just as much about the people around you as it is about you and you nurturing the best out of them but also them getting the best out of you as well as a leader yes and i think there are many styles of leadership but the one that i i lean towards as much as i possibly can is where you hire people that are better than you and i mean more skilled in particular areas and you you I found in my early days, I had to get over my ego. I started as a leader, leading from the front. Follow me, do it my way, do it this way. Look at me, I'm good at this. Um, And very soon I realized just how stunted that was actually because um, to be an organization and to to be um, a company, and I mean company in terms of um, an organization that you register with Companies House, but I also mean company as in the company we keep, the people we are with, and and the strongest teams are those who are filled with experts in their field, um, learners, uh, dedicated, open-minded people who know that I'll, I can do this and I can add that. I can't do the whole lot, but I can do this very, very well. And I think it's part to do with the expertise that they bring, but also the willingness to learn. And then particular, perhaps, to uh, the area, the sector of business I'm in, I really need people who have a moral purpose, who have a burning desire to improve uh, improve the education of young people, to, to change the things that aren't working. We all can think of. Uh, examples of bad things that we've, we've, we've um, encountered in education in the same way we can all think of good things, I hope, as well. And so I think it's very much about 
deciding what type of leader you want to be and how are you going to surround yourself with a brilliant team um, that together we are more than the sum of the parts. And I, I wouldn't say for a moment that we're there, but that's certainly what, we, what we're aiming to do. And, and that's what I spend my time thinking about as a leader is what are the gaps? What are the things that we need to do together? What are the aspects that we've got right and which are the bits we need to tinker with? So if we were to give one message to the next generation of emerging leaders, as it were, it would be to essentially show some humility, not try to do everything alone and to surround yourself with people who are experienced and do have a lot to offer you. And as I've said before, can get nurture the best out of you and also vice versa. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I would add to that, um, those people who also wish to learn, they're not the finished article. They think, I want to learn. Um, I want to understand more. I want to push the boundaries within my part of this company, but also to contribute to uh, everybody's learning. And in fact, the, the motto that we have in our offices around the world is proving is good, improving is better. Mm. And I do like that um, ethos as well, because it really challenges this idea that perhaps some people have that great leaders are essentially born with certain innate qualities. And to a certain degree, that may be true. Some people may come with a natural self-motivation, a hunger or a desire, but you're not born a good leader, are you? You have to learn and develop to essentially become just that. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Personally, I don't know if I've ever met an innate natural leader. I, I've met people who seem to be able to motivate people very well or to open their mouth and everybody listen or to to lead from the front, front or lead by experience or have the gravitas of, of age or wisdom. But I don't know if I've ever met somebody who has that innate ability because when you ask the questions of those leaders, every single one of them, has got a story. Every single one of them mm. will talk about overcoming challenges and maybe even um, huge, great, big mistakes and failure. And I think that, uh, uh, to me, it's are you willing to learn from that? And in fact, I attended a. I was asked to do a, a, a ten-minute presentation at a, a, a fun event in inverted commas, and F, funs F U N stood for F up night. And um, it was leaders were invited to spend 10 minutes talking about the biggest effort and what they've learned from it. And it was absolutely brilliant. And it, maybe it helped that uh, the audience had had a drink or two as well. And this was in Northern Netherlands. And, and it was absolutely superb. Each and every entrepreneur and leader spent time talking about this is how I stuffed up. This was my biggest mistake, and this is what I learned from it, and this is why we've got the company we've got now. Mm, that's, that's really interesting because um, it may be the case that uh, some people are essentially held back on their leadership journeys because they're not taking risks and trying things precisely because they're afraid of failure and they're afraid of being in the firing line for criticism due to those failures. Should we be telling people not to be afraid of such failures and to instead embrace that and be willing to learn from it? Yes. Uh, for sure. Uh, I think I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to fail. But I do want 
every single person in my company, in my family, in my circle of friends to have the attitude of failure happens, mistakes happen, more than failure. It's not that we will never fail, but we will fail. The thing is, how do we respond to that? I don't want anyone in my company to see failure or mistakes as the end of the road. I don't want them to think, oh, hell, why on earth did I do that? That was stupid me. I'm never going to do that again. I want them to think, that didn't work. Why did it not work? What can I learn from it? And what can we design from here to make it better next time? And I think very many times um, you can see examples such as um, some of the leaders in this country that I've met who seem to be the most motivated Often they'll talk about something like having failed the 11 plus back in the day. And that's driven them to prove that they're not a failure. Um, I, when I set out on this journey, I, I put on a, a huge, great big conference. At least I thought it was going to be a huge conference. And uh, I was going to, um, it was Justin Langer, the opening batsman for Australia at the time. He and I were going to do this big conference together. And we were going to get hundreds of people. And we hired a room at... Uh, Lord, this was going to set my company on the path to success. And we got two people signing up, and only one of them turned up. £25,000 went on our mortgage that day. And uh, my wife had just given birth to our firstborn. And you can imagine, it was this sense of, what have we done here? Um, and we felt as if, right, let's just go back into teaching. That's that's the safe option. Uh, public sector, you know where you're at. You know you're going to be paid. Let's just get on with it. But actually, we've used that significant value. And that's just one that I'm prepared to talk about here. Of course, there are many, many more that I might mm. talk about with people I know. And, and that failure has pushed us on to being what we feel is much better. So we put on lots of conferences, but we never do it unilaterally. We always do it in tandem, in partnership with um, a group of people who want that particular thing. And we, we've had some of the world's leading names in the world of education uh, doing conferences with us. But every time we put on a conference, we think back to that failure. Um, to be honest, I might even go as far as to say I would worry about um, partnering with any company that hasn't failed before. Because I think if they believe that they've got the Midas touch, that can be a very, very, very problematic thing. I think there's a lot of thought-provoking stuff there, James, and um, also some really, really great examples of learning curves as well. And we are in the midst of a huge learning curve at the moment, um, while the whole world is really with the COVID-19 outbreak and navigating the storm of that. Um, If we look at the future now, before we do wrap things up, uh, what do you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself and challenging learning? And what do you hope to achieve in that time coming through the pandemic and, of course, out of the other side? So for us, uh, of course, like most companies, I suppose, the, the first bit was, oh, hell, what do we do? And how do we take care of our people here? And how do we, we uh, turn off the tap of money going out of the company? And so we took care of that very, very quickly. And then we went into a little bit of a hibernation period of now what do we do? Now we're, we're starting on the growing out of this um, period. And we're looking at ways to use, for example, uh, video technologies uh, to be able to support people in different ways, to 
look at a different delivery to our current clients, but also to look for ways in which we can support other people. And in the world of education, of course, um, it's not just the, the teaching staff, it, it's the parents connected with that and the parents who find themselves at home, like uh, my wife and I with three kids uh, who are not going to school anymore and we're trying to run a, a business as well as having these kids at home. So um, I think what we're doing now is looking for different opportunities and we're looking for different groups of people that we can work with. And I think at the heart, at the root perhaps of creativity often is necessity. And we are, um, we are necessarily having to design differently. So again, it's back to that. Are we learners? Are we willing to learn? Are we open-minded enough to learn? We work with schools and that is really interesting in terms of when a school is going to open. And not just when are they going to open, but when are they going to open to such a degree that the staff are going to have the mental capacity and desire for professional development? Because, of course, when they reopen, of course, most of them haven't closed. They're still open for children of key workers. But once they're all back to work again, I think it's going to take a lot of looking after and a lot of nurturing and a lot of helping children to get over what's happened. And it's being ready to help those staff to grow professionally after the, the wounds have been licked, so to speak. So for us, it's, it's being comfortable with uncertainty. It's being responsive. It's making sure we're following our staff, making sure that we hold true with our values. And as Churchill once said, uh, if you're going through hell, keep going. And I think that's a key part of this, that we need to keep going and we need to be gentle with each other. We need to support each other and we need to um, be ready for when people want us. And to be quite honest, I think that's something that would be valuable advice for anybody listening to take on board going into the future. Um, I have to say, James, it's been a really insightful experience and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And for the benefit of the listeners, what I think might be fantastic is in the next few months, once the fog starts clearing, as it were, we could perhaps revisit this, have you back on the programme and just look at how the business has been doing. Um, But for now, I've really enjoyed having you on the air and thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. Thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute honour. I've really enjoyed it, James. Thank you so much. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew, and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. So, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection 
was it wasn't Marcus Viscothy who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, 
I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising, I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And... Um, yeah, it it's just an extraordinary thing, and uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for... for Absolutely, Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trep Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job 
what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, They'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was, 
we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. in the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift our both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think... I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about 
legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, 
before we gave us I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket. Um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the hundred, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the hundred as well? Uh, well, so the hundred is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.